from Isaiah 61, 10 and 11 to 62, 3. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and he has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the earth brings forth its shoots and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all nations. The Vindication and Salvation of Zion For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not rest until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all kings your glory and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is, the, this is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Jesus is presented at the temple. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves and two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your heart also. There was a prophet Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshiped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for redemption of Jerusalem. The Return to Nazareth. When they had finished everything by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. 
This is the story of faith and faithful struggle. Thanks be to God. Lord, we ask you to transform our hearts, our minds, and our lips with your word. One of the most prominent theologians in the church was Karl Rahner. And Karl Rahner was basically a contemporary. He was born in 1904, and he died in 1984. And if you met somebody who knew Kyle Ron or heard of him, they would always say to you, they would say to you, um, isn't he the guy, isn't he the theologian who said, the Christian of the future must be a mystic or he will not exist at all? That's a pretty profound statement. And I don't think it's accepted often uh, because it really has to be nuanced. But I think when Rana talked about us all being a mystic, I think he's speaking of us being like Simeon and Anna in the reading today. You know, look at Simeon. He picks up an ordinary baby, an ordinary looking baby, a real baby of flesh and blood, a baby that cries. You and I could do that. And we've probably done that. You know, Simeon doesn't know Mary. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know who they are. But he knows this baby. He looks at this baby and he had a conversation with the father and he prayed and somehow he heard the father say to him the way the father speaks the name Simeon means to hear. He heard the father in some way the father got the message to him that he would not die, he would not leave this world until he saw the saving power of God of the Father. And on that day, he sees this baby and it clicks. There it is. The saving power of God. So sure was he that he looked up to heaven and said, I'm ready to go. You've kept up your hand of the bargain. I'm ready to go. You told me I would see your saving power in this life before I die. Simeon was a special guy, you know, he wasn't much different than us, except he had the time to pray. He was in the temple all the time with Anna, and the two of them prayed. And that's a prerequisite to Rana's becoming a mystic. We have to be a people of prayer, because God doesn't come to us without it. You know, when we read the Gospels, our Lord makes a big deal out of praying. And the qualities he says that we have to have is we have to persevere. We have to keep doing it. And why do we have to keep doing it? Because he ignores us and we try to get his attention? No, because the process of going through that prayer, the process of trying to reach him, in some way, slowly reveals him who's already in our midst, who's already in front of us, who we don't see. And then someday we'll have that experience that Simeon had. 
Now, the wonderful experience that Simeon had is probably an experience that um, we all want to have. I think one of the things he saw in that infant was sacredness. He saw that infant as sacred. And that's a pretty um, um, big task to look at another human being and see them as sacred. And by seeing them, I mean feeling it with no doubt. I think Karl Rana, he wrote a prayer. He was a theologian, but he's very spiritual. And a lot of his theology comes out in his prayers. His prayers are profound, but if you study them as a theologian, we're well, not all theologians, um, the, the quality, the, the um, format is there of the things that we try to study and understand about what we know about God from theology, which is just a reflection on the experience of God. It's not the experience, it's a reflection. And we need it to kind of guide us. But here's what he wrote. And I, I could see uh, Simeon saying the same pr prayer. Here's what Rana says. Oh God, whenever I think of your infinity, I am racked with it anxiety wondering how you are disposed to me. You must adapt your word to my smallness so that it can enter into my tiny dwelling of my finiteness. This is the only dwelling in which I can live without destroying that. If you speak such an abbreviated word which would not say everything, but only something simple that I could grasp, then I could breathe freely. I could breathe freely again. You must make your own, some human word, for that is the only kind I can comprehend. Don't tell me everything that you are. Don't tell me your infinity. Just say that you love me. Just tell me your goodness. And I think that was pretty much Simeon's prayer. Because let's face it, this mysticism, this divinity, um, comes to Simeon through the flesh of a child, human flesh. And even Jesus at this stage was human. He was empty of his divinity. Do you know it's been the last hundred years that we really embraced the fact that Jesus was truly a human being and also that he was a Jew? Those are two things that we kind of went around. The reason we didn't understand his humanity is because we're trying to figure out his divinity. How do they coexist? And we always put the humanity as secondary because that's the last place we'd look for something sacred. We look to the resurrected Christ, the completed Christ. But his earthly life, his historical life, which we can figure out through our prayer and the scriptures that were not written in that order. His humanity comes right to us. It comes into the things he says and it echoes in us. It ignites us. It turns our mind on to see what he sees. We hear them all the time, the words, 
come into our consciousness. The scriptures does that to us. That's why we need the scriptures as they are. And that's why we need to pray. That's the only way we meet him. The two things that Simeon had, and it says in the reading, he had faith and he had the Holy Spirit. We have both. The Holy Spirit, really you can't think of the Holy Spirit out of the context of faith. Because it's the Holy Spirit that gives us the gift of faith. Faith comes to us, and I'll use this word, but I don't like it, and I know people don't like it. Faith is a supernatural entity. It's in us. And it really doesn't fit. Our mind can't grasp it. What faith shows us. It just can't. It can't wrap itself around it. We, 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 but it's there. Our body, if it wasn't faith, our contact with God, if it was directly God, our body would blow up. We couldn't handle it. Our mind would blow up. So he gives us this gift of faith. And that's how he leads us. But it's a gift. It isn't to mess with us. And what does this gift of faith do in our humanity, in our lifetime? It lights us up. It lights us up with a light that is brighter than the sun. It doesn't deny the intellect. It brings it to fruition. It gives us wisdom. It enables us to see, as the Christ saw, we truly become the human Christ. And we begin to see his divinity in human flesh, in one another. And we know the kingdom is close when we see that each other is sacred. There's a wonderful writer. Um, her name is Marilyn Robinson. She wrote the book, The Gilead, which won the Pulitzer. And she writes a lot of essays. And she's quite smart. And she's hard to follow, but it's worth the struggle. And I'm going to try to explain something that I read. And it's going to be probably harder for you to follow me. But she kind of talked about the problem with humanity today. We have a problem. And she said the problem is with our intellect. That when the Enlightenment came to us, and then through the Enlightenment, science, and the scientific method. Now, Einstein said this about the scientific method. Isn't nature wonderful that is open to our investigation? Isn't it wonderful? The reverse should be true. Aren't we wonderful that we can investigate according to the laws of science? How wonderful that is. We could see it as God's gift to us. But something along the way happened. That scientific method kind of detached itself from us and became an entity outside ourselves almost. And it judged us. It walked around our lives and anything that couldn't be scientifically proven didn't exist. All the way from Carl Jung, 
to faith, to God. Now, the war between science and religion is a false war. It doesn't exist. I mean, it exists, but we fabricate it. You know, um, religion has its place and science has its place. But science should not be the debunker of what's not reasonable. But those are the times we live in. That's what Robinson says. Now, she wrote this uh, about five years ago. And when we look at our world today, and when we look at where we're at, and we have to start looking, and it's hard, it's difficult, because the first thing we want to do when we see the shape of the world, especially the climate, especially animals going extinct, especially the fact that we're on the brink of something big, destruction. The first thing we want to do is blame something outside of ourselves. And we can't. It does no, does no good. The kingdom of God, at this time now, has to come individually. It's not going to be a group thing. In the kingdom of God, when it's in people, they come out with faith. They see the world as faith. You know, the funny thing about our faith, the story of Genesis, the garden, Christmas, Advent, Easter, all those things are in the present. They're happening now. This is in history. If we want to wake up with a way to understand the world, the mythology that comes to us from Genesis is a wonderful explanation. It's not scientific. But science isn't the only way we know. There's another part of us that knows. Science doesn't know poetry. Science doesn't know beauty. Science doesn't know truth. We do. And when science robs us of that, we're mistaken for that to happen. It makes us bankrupt. And the big thing that happens is we don't see each other as sacred. We don't see the world as sacred. We see it as something to be used. The philosophy of utilitarianism comes in. Everything around us, we see what it can do for us. And when that's pushed to the edge, we have what we have. And I don't think we're any worse than any other generations. We have our ups and our lows. But our low is something like 1945 with the atomic age coming. Everything's changed. We can destroy ourselves. And global warming, global climate problems are really hard to look at. I'm not a scientist, but in some ways, this pandemic didn't have to happen, I guess. It had something to do with our upheavaling nature. And something with the bats, that's all I know. But I could see the cause and effect.
know, when we grow palm oil and cut down the forest, and you can see pictures of it, and it's just, it's amazing, you know, the planet suffers. I never thought I would live to see this. This is a great tragedy we're in. We're facing it. And if we don't come out of this without the ability to determine what's truly sacred, beginning with ourselves, we could possibly go over the edge. I don't know. I don't understand God. I know when you mention the kingdom of some people, they get frustrated. He came 2,000 years ago. We don't have the kingdom yet. We're like the early apostles and the early, our brothers and sisters, the Jewish people. They had messianic expectations. The Messiah was coming, but they wanted him to be what they wanted him to be. And when he came, they had trouble. It reminds me of a story. During World War II in the Philippines, it was uh, the Japanese came in and they took over a convent that was, you know, part of the prison camp. And, you know, they, they were on a lock and key. Um, and this one Japanese soldier was fascinated by these nuns. And he would watch them. He would watch them go through their daily routine, their prayers. And he didn't say much, but they knew he was kind. And he watched them. And then one day he saw them, it was Christmas. And he saw them with this little crib. And they put the crib down. Now he knew everything about their religion that was on the walls, you know, all these different things, but he never saw this before. Then he sees a little baby go in there, a little doll. And he looks at the little baby and he looks at the wall and there's a crucifix. And he looks at the baby again, he looks at the wall and then he looks at the nun and he says, is that him? And she says, yes. And he says, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. That sounds maybe a little sentimental, but there's something about Christmas that we have to remember. There's a cross involved. It's not his cross, it's ours. And he's not paying some debt for us. You know, now we kind of look at our spirituality, not from a stagnant uh, position of life. When I grew up in the 50s, and that wasn't long ago, you know, when you were 21, you were a man. You were fully grown. All you had to do now was behave yourself so you get to heaven. Nothing was going to change. You know, we understood who we were and we understood who God was. And then Darwin comes along and talks about this evolution. And theologians start to incorporate that. We don't hear much about it. But it's really part of our spirituality now. We're evolving. We're not finished. Creation goes on. We're becoming more being, more conscious. We're growing. And why does all this happen? I could imagine God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit around the drinking fountain. 
And the Father said to the Holy Spirit, how's my creation doing? You know, we're going to give them free will because that's how we want them to love us. We want them to know how we love one another. A kenosis, we self-empty into each other. We want them to be part of that. So they have to go through something to transform them. They have to learn how to love. They have to become like us. And there's no nothing magic we can do. This is the best way to do it. This human life we give them. Then the Holy Spirit says to Jesus and the Father, you know, today our creation, the consciousness is developing. But today they realize they have to die. And let me tell you something, they don't like it. They're building big, huge things to hold wheat so they can eat forever. They don't want to die. And they're quite angry at you. They blame you. They didn't buy into that. But in some way, they see it as something that's not meant to be. That you caused it, not them. Now, that type of understanding of spirituality, of an of a evolving creation, Rather than a fixed creation, the story of Genesis doesn't quite fit that. But it does. Think of Genesis. Think of the garden. Think of what we did as Adam and Eve. There's no Adam and Eve. We're Adam and Eve. What did we do to our garden? We wanted to be gods. We invented our own good and evil. on a level that doesn't give us eternal life, that ends our existence. Yes, we need a savior, even with that. So the three of them around the drinking fountain and the father looks at the son, the son looks at the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit looks at the father and the son says to the father, okay, when, when? And the father says, are you ready for this? And the son says, yeah. yeah. Do you know what it entails? Yeah. You have to be them. You can't go down there in your divinity. They're not going to like that. You have to be one of them. You have to break away from me. You have to wake up one morning and the only way you're going to know me is to grow up like a good Jew. And read about me in the scriptures. And Abraham's going to be your father of faith. Are you ready for that? And the son says, yeah. And the Holy Spirit says, well, when you go down, I'll help you. I'll bring you where we're going to bring humanity. And so that's what happens. God empties himself and becomes a man like us with faith. The same doubts. But he didn't, he had something we don't have, he had faith. 
He never doubted his father. He struggled, but in the end, he was like Simeon. He trusted the father. And that's how Jesus was. He had his little discussions with the father. In the garden, he's going to get crucified the next day or that night. Or he's going to get arrested. And it's hitting him. Not because he's God and he can think like a mystic. He's human. He sees all the pieces. He didn't orchestrate those either. He didn't quite know what was going to happen down there. He didn't. He was human. But it slowly unfolds. As a human, I have to die. Did he know he's going to be resurrected? We don't know. Sometimes the Gospels make it look like, but those Gospels are put together after the resurrection. Well, they knew his whole life. They knew his whole divinity. They knew him as a human. They knew him as resurrected, and then they knew him as ascended, sending down the Holy Spirit. So when they put that story all together, each book is for this community that needs to know God. You know, three communities, three Gospels. For different communities. We are four now, but they come to us to meet our needs. They're still inspired. They're still the real presence. They're our salvation. We need this word. We can't invent this stuff. So we go along the line. And why do we have to why do we have to go this way to evolve? We have to learn what love is. The father and son love one another by the word kenosis means emptying. They pull themselves into each other. And we evolve into that. Why do we evolve into that? Because God wants us to love him freely. He wants a certain equality from us, and that sounds heretical, but he does. He wants us to be his equals in love. We worry about virtual reality. You know, these robots we make, what if they get consciousness? What are they going to do? Are they gonna take, you know, what are they going to do to us? You know? Well, if they're like us, they're going to give the engineers a hard time. You know, with God, we don't quite cooperate because we don't of faith. We don't have that seeing beyond reason. Faith is a gift. Faith is supernatural. We have a natural faith, but we have this other faith. Read the Gospels. How many times does our Lord, when he sees faith, he goes nuts. Great is your faith. And when he doesn't see it, he goes, little is your faith. And the other one is fear. Now he tells us not to be afraid. Simeon was there. I love Simeon because I want to be like him. I want to see it here before I die. I'm 70 now. I'm a coward. I want to be, you know, feel. The uncreated Christ, the resurrected Christ, the glorified Christ, 
the human Christ. Divinity comes through humanity. Think about that. Think about some of the stories in the gospel. Think about the story of the transfiguration. It's in the three gospels. And it's mentioned in the letter of Peter. And they're almost verbatim. What went on there? You know, we explained, oh, well, they went up the mountain because, you know, he was getting near the uh, passion. He was going to die. So he's going to make them ready for this horrible thing that's coming. So he's going to give them a little boost. Yeah, yeah, it's probably true. They saw his divinity. They saw uncreated light. It's funny how physics is. You know, light's energy. Light's everything. You know, and quantum physics has shown us a lot of stuff. I'm wondering we're going to find him. It's, you know, through science is going to pop up. But we don't know. We, we know this. He's leading us. And he's transforming us. And our consciousness sees it. That's why we're made. Why does time keep bringing us along and new kids and new, we grow up and we go through this? Where's the progress, God? Where's the kingdom on earth? Are we, are we going to blow the earth up? Of course, our relationship with matter has changed. It continues. I mean, we thought we left the body behind and matter was gone, but it's not. But this is stuff, as you get old, you start to think about. You know? And you hope you're not out of step. You, know? you hope you're not old school. And you're talking about something that people already know. And even if they do, you could at least share your delight with them. I love, I'll end it with what Rana says. He says, I don't want to know everything about you, God. You're too big. But let me tell you something. Show me that you love me. Show me you're good. And that will be enough to get me on my trip. And that's Simeon. Show me enough. Flesh and blood. And that's the question for the future. That's our hope, that we see each other sacred. We should go back and talk to the Indians who saw the world sacred, took care of it.